And I remember it took me five minutes going, come on, shake it, shake it, shake it. You need to be reporting. You need to be reporting. And my hands were trembling like this. And then I remember saying, okay, finally, I got the courage. And I managed to not step outside. Everyone had been outside for a long time. And Gucci's like, ciao, get out here. Ciao, get out here. And I'm like, okay. But then I finally went up on the turret, first filmed outside. And then slowly, I calmed down. And then I managed to step outside and do what I was supposed to do, which is report what was happening. How much do our fears shape who we ultimately become? What does it take for us to live courageously? This week, we speak to someone who has seen fear cripple lives, communities, and even nations. Steve Chow is an Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker, investigative journalist, and former war correspondent. He has spent more than two decades on the front lines in the world's hotspots with Al Jazeera, reporting on the surrender of the Taliban in Kandahar, Afghanistan following the 9-11 attacks, terrorist attacks in Mumbai, and the Cairo clashes during the Arab Spring, just to name a few. With a heart to give a voice to the voiceless, Steve has gone undercover to expose corrupt United Nations and government officials, notorious wildlife traffickers of endangered animals, and embedded with President Rodrigo Duterte to examine his controversial war on drugs. In this fascinating and invigorating chat with Steve, we get an exclusive insight into life as an investigative journalist and unpack what fear is and how we can unlearn it to live with courage. So sit back and enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hello, Steve. Thanks for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you on the Explore This podcast. I know that we've been pursuing and trying to get some of your time for ages, um, but it's also because we know you're a super incredibly busy person. So thank you once again for being on the pod with us today. I am so honored to be asked to be with you guys on Explore This. This is fantastic. And yes, so happy to be on. To kick things off, Steve, many may know you as an Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker. You've directed and produced films as well as series for Netflix, HBO, Discovery Channel 4, just to name a few. You were also an investigative journalist and a former war correspondent with Al Jazeera. All of these profiles and archetypes are first time on our pod, by the way, so truly unconventional indeed. We love profiling, you know, really interesting. Interesting doesn't even cut it. That might be underselling you, Steve, but, you know, we're super excited that, you know, we have someone like you who has been on the front line covering conflict, war zones, disaster zones, and really high-tension areas around the globe from Japan to Afghanistan and just Literally, I cannot even start counting the number of countries there. Um, but not many would have actually known your origins story. So let's wind back the clock a little and hear from you about what actually inspired you to pursue journalism. Wow. If you want the origin story, you have to wind back the clock quite a bit because I'm, <laughs> I'm on uh, a few years above you guys. Um, yeah. So in terms of how it all began, I think it really began when I was a little child. And to be very honest and frank, it began watching my father abuse my mom and send her to hospital so many times. And as a little boy, you feel so helpless seeing the situation. And I think inside that pain and that heartbreak grew this desire for justice. 
this desire to truly help those who are voiceless, powerless, to have a voice, to have a power, and to change things for the better. And I remember as a teenager growing up and growing up a bit angry over the whole broken family situation, I remember asking God, God, I just want to do something that will improve the world. What should it be? And that answer came when I was 19. Uh, I was in my first year of uni. I was in Guatemala doing development work during my summertime. And when I was there, there was a coup. The president decided to dissolve government and take over. What that caused was tons of fighting between different factions. His faction, the military, the rebels that existed because Guatemala had already been mired in decades of civil war. During that time, we were working in some villages in the north of Guatemala, and the villagers hid us during all this conflict. But what happened during that time was the military would roll into a village, for example, and feel that they were against them. So they would line up men against a wall and shoot them dead. Then a few days later, the rebels would come in and say, hey, wait a second, I thought you served us, but it looks like you're supporting the military. Line up more men and kill them. When the airport in Guatemala City finally opened and we left Guatemala, I remember at the airport picking up an old Time magazine from a few weeks earlier. And if you know, and if you recall, there's a section this week in news in Time magazine and it has a map of the world. And I remember looking down at Guatemala and it said, bloodless coup in Guatemala, a bloodless coup. But I knew for a fact that it was not bloodless, that people were dying. And at that point, I felt God saying, go be a journalist, be in these places, these dark spots in the world and shine a light and tell the world what's going on. So that really spoke to that justice side of me that was with me when I was like five years old. It began, it was birth when I was five, six years old. And then it's just continued from there. I remember changing my degree after that, leaving my university in Montreal, Canada, which I loved, and uh, and taking on journalism. And then two years in, I managed to get a reporting job at the local TV station. And it really was that, you know, off to the races at that point. Thank you, Steve, for, for sharing that story with us. And I think, you know, it's really inspiring to hear you grow that desire for justice, even through such a painful and heartbreaking experience. And, you know, we're really excited to to delve deeper into your story. And, you know, you have previously covered stories such as the illicit drug production in the Golden Triangle, the war in Afghanistan, truly very challenging locations around the world, even navigating the murky world of underground racing and going undercover as a priest to expose conditions of refugee facilities in Malaysia. These are things that are very hard to fathom, especially for us who do, you know, sort of nine to five day-to-day jobs. So we are honored, truly honored today to put you on a hot seat. We know you have been interviewing some of the most difficult personalities in the world. But today we get a chance to, to have you here and, you know, unpack these stories with you. So to start us off, what would you say is the most memorable story you have ever uncovered and why? Ooh, the most memorable story. That's a bit of a hard one. I'd say, you know, there's been a lot of fun investigations that we've done. Like, I love getting ourselves into as much as possible in the name of doing good. And you've listed some of the, the moments where we've gotten ourselves into sticky situations on investigations. I'd probably say the most interesting one of all that in recent memory was when we went to Nepal to try and expose the looters and the middlemen 
that were stealing antiquities and essentially gods from temples and holy sites in Nepal. This is something that's been going on for centuries. You know, you, you can imagine these looters going into a temple in the middle of the night, stealing a statue, stealing a figurine, or actually hacking pieces off of a temple, and then smuggling it out into the West. And then some private collectors, or even museums, would buy them for tens of millions of dollars. It was such lucrative industry. And, you know, I remember um, we were actually covering a different story. We were on Everest, actually, covering the whole Everest story when I heard about this fact. Uh, when, when we met a Nepalese saying that they were stealing our gods, that for centuries we've been losing our culture and our identity. So we thought we'd do something about it. And so we went undercover as buyers. Mm -hmm. And using hidden cameras and networks that we developed, we got a front seat with some of these middlemen that were selling these on to collectors overseas. And from that, what we recorded, we showed to Nepal's FBI, the Criminal Investigation Bureau. And they said, you know what? You have enough evidence. Let's launch an investigation, a sting, and let's get them. And we did that. And we got one of the top guys in Nepal arrested and charged for that crime. And, you know, we're happy to say that that investigation ended up getting the notice of John Oliver a little while later. And, you know, he really celebrated this issue and him and others who've done stories about antiquities theft and how museums around the world showcase a lot of artwork and idols and gods they showcase this without thinking about the origins and where and the fact that many were stolen and now there's a huge movement to return them back mm. to the countries where they belong i'm so intrigued steve i mean just from the moment you get these tip-offs to then the decision process of deciding to pose as a buyer, we want to unpack the layers of the onion a little bit. How exactly does this investigative journalism process usually work? So you start off with a tip-off from someone reliable. How do you validate the sort of veracity of, of that statement before deciding that, you know, the process of going undercover and things like that? That's a really good question. And, you know, I, I don't want to give away too much because this is our whole, you know, trade no just kidding <laughs> tricks um, of the but, trade <laughs> you know tricks of the trade exactly but yeah uh, we always try to validate our sources and i've got sources in law enforcement i've got sources in the criminal underworld whether it be triads or the cosa nostra or you know you you name it so when we get a tip or a suggestion for a story we really do see if it stands up and i would say 95 percent of the time it doesn't or sometimes it's good meaning. People want something changed, but they don't have a full understanding of what's wrong and, and why it is that way and whether it needs an investigation or not. So we do a lot of background research and due diligence to make sure, hey, this is worth it. And then we ask ourselves, what is the story? And then at that point, how do we get it? And that's when it gets really tricky. Tell us more. I mean, how do you then decide that being a buyer is the best way to go about it? And the language barrier, how do you navigate these language barriers when you try to put on an identity that is not what you usually do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important point. And this is where I'd like to sort of celebrate the unsung heroes of investigation. I'd say the unsung heroes of investigations when we go around the world are those within the countries that risk their lives to help us along the way. Because they are the ones that stay behind after the investigation is released. So they bear a lot of risk and a lot of threat. At the same time, they are the ones that are often fronting the first part of the investigation because they speak the language. Um, and so, you know, we do our best 
to protect them as much as possible, but they are truly the unsung heroes. In times, for example, I remember sneaking into one country and I can't name this one because I don't think it's ever been out that we were there, but you know, we were trying to expose things happening in a mine and it was in an area that was controlled by the military. So I posed as a local and I posed as a deaf and mute local because if I spoke, I didn't speak the local language. Wow. And for one week, the local producer took me along and we would film all of the illegal appropriations of land in the name of mining that have happened in the middle of the night. I used a night vision camera and literally was beside the authorities who were stealing all this land for mining rights. And we exposed an incredible amount. You know, so, you know, yeah, it's again, the bravery of those who agree locally to work with us to expose wrongdoing that I really want to champion here. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was one documentary, you know, closer to our shore. We we watched the one that you released, Uncovering the Refugee Situation Here in Malaysia, where you actually went undercover as a priest. And it's really incredible how you managed to, you know, get even a lot of these informants to open up and, and speak to you. How do you gain the trust um, of these informants and these people that ultimately come and tell you more about the situation that leads you to more clues? I think it's in any kind of relationship that you have, trust comes with time and trust comes with giving of yourself. You know, and so I always believe that we ourselves have to put ourselves out there at, to a certain degree of risk as we are asking others to put themselves at risk. So oftentimes when we begin an investigation, like the one you're talking about in Malaysia, we would spend time with the refugees that helped us on that one. Just as a quick recap, you know, we did expose the corrupt employees or people working for the UNHCR, as well as, you know, some corrupt practices of government that were ongoing in terms of the treatment of refugees during that time. That was what that story was about in Malaysia. And our sources are, and our informants were the refugees themselves who had already escaped horrific situations in other countries and, you know, were basically unseen people, undocumented here in, in Malaysia in some cases. Others had UNHCR cars, but they were being exploited mm -hmm. and they wanted to expose this, but it came at a great risk to themselves. And so we spent a lot of time to gain their trust, to help them understand that we're not in it for any fame, we're not in it for ourselves, but really trying to expose the issue to help all the other refugees that will come after them. And then they agreed to work with us on this. Yeah, I think some of the scenes and things that you hear must be quite harrowing as well, right? Hearing the brutality from the cops and things like that. Has there been anything that you've encountered in these exposés that was so harrowing that it left a very huge impact? And how do you deal with these very graphic brutal sort of scenes that is part and parcel of your job i believe that in order to gain trust you have to spend time with people and you have to risk yourselves and give of yourselves part of this as well is you know some people have always argued that in journalism you need to remove yourself and protect yourself to a certain extent because there's a lot of emotion there's a lot of things that you witness but i don't believe in that i really believe that if you really want to understand a story if you really want to be a voice for the voiceless, the people you're doing the story for and with, then you need to immerse yourself. You need to feel their pain. And that comes at a cost, like you said. Afghanistan's a great example. I've lost so many great friends, including one of my local producers, Jojo. And as a result of that, you know, I've had massive PTSD, post-traumatic stress 
you know, disorders, you know, where you get night sweats and you get like, you know, visions of attacks and all these sort of things. But the redeeming thing for me is my faith. I believe that there is a God and that God has put me here for a reason. And that reason is for now, you know, to expose the wrongdoings in this world at times, to championing the good, and just to try to sort of do what we can on this short time on this planet, you know, to make the lives of others better. Mm. Yeah, Steve, you know, just hearing you talk about it, honestly, it does give me goosebumps because it just reminds me that when you have clarity of your purpose, and it seems very evidently so that you have that for yourself, um, it just is that driving force to give you purpose, even if it means putting yourself in the front lines of danger. You know, you had a very, very risky job. You had to wear many different hats, posing as very interesting characters, being mute for a week. Like, I can't even imagine it. But, you know, all of it makes sense especially to yourself when you know what is the greater purpose and calling that is meant for you. And so, you know, I love that you also brought in the element of really trusting and knowing that it was God's calling and purpose for you. So on that note, we also know that in one of your interviews with Rage, which is an investigative journalism team under the Star newspaper based in Malaysia, and this is back in 2017 when you had said, and I quote, no story is worth dying for, but it is our duty as journalists to perform our roles to shine a light in dark places. And it's evident through the work that you do as an investigative journalist to lift the lid on injustices, and especially when it comes to the exposés of government wrongdoing. But it also can have very devastating and sometimes even deadly consequences. So how do you think about as well as balance the need to tell those important stories with the potential risk to your own safety. And also, you know, we don't live in silo, right? We have our families to consider and our loved ones. How do you put all of that into perspective and into context to the work that you do? Yeah, I think the, the word that you use that's important is balance. And I can't honestly say that I've often had the proper balance, you know, in life, um, just because I think I'm so passionate about this profession and so passionate about trying to do good. But in saying that, I believe that, you know, we have been given faculties to try our best to use whatever resources we have to mitigate risk. And so I always take a very military approach to our investigations. I go, what is the worst case scenario? And we work back from there. So if we're doing an investigation on a wildlife trafficker, what are the chances that he or she will come after our families, will come after myself or my team? And then we say, okay, is it worth it? And how do you prevent that? So, you know, at times it means um, that we change our pattern of work, you know, and our, our pattern of life. We don't leave the house at the same time every day. We change cities of where we're living. Sometimes it means that, you know, especially if we're working and investigating a multinational corporation that has huge deep pockets or other powerful authorities, whether it be governments or others, it means that our investigations, all our data is stored on computers that are not linked to the World Wide Web. There are so many things that we can do. It means that when we travel you know, on investigations, we are not only turning off our phones, but sometimes leaving our phones behind so that we're not easily tracked. There are so many things that we consider along the way as investigative journalists to try to ensure that, number one, our patterns aren't picked up and that our teams are safe. In the case of the investigation on the UNHCR in Malaysia that we just talked about earlier, two of the refugees after our story broke were beaten up. 
they were chased, hunted, and beaten up. And we were trying to keep them safe, but they got found in a market. And so then we really pulled all the strings that we could and our contacts to get them into a safe house. And then to get them processed quicker in terms of their asylum processes. And they were sent to another country. So I think, you know, always we're trying to think for the betterment of our team. And even on an investigation, like say we're going to go into um, a jungle to go after a meth lab, even after all the hours of planning that we do to do that, the moment we go in, we ask the team, is everyone comfortable going in? And if one person is not comfortable, we don't do it. Or they stay behind and we go. So it's all, there's all this planning, all this contingency, but this goes back to what you were asking in the first place, which was what I said on rage, which is nothing is worth dying for if we can avoid it. Right. <laughs> you know, so, and, you know, we willingly go in on risk. You know, I've, yeah. in Afghanistan, when we did an investigation on the opium harvest that the Taliban was making its millions off of, my cameraman and I really had constant conversations when we went into deep into Taliban territory, into these harvests of opium that were happening. And we kept saying to ourselves, are we willing to do this? Are we willing to do this? Are you okay? Are you okay? And we did it. And there were moments where we're like, Oh, good Lord. <laughs> we are surrounded by armed Taliban and they have no idea we're here. How are we going to get out? Wow. But there go by the grace of God, right? So, you know, we, we managed to get out and prayer. Yes. Yeah. Lots of prayer. Lots of prayer. Lots of thank you, God. Thank you for getting us out of that situation. <laughs> so, yes. It's just so almost ridiculous, if you don't mind me saying, Steve, because it, it's just like, it, it it blows my mind, if I can put it quite simply, to think about how you are intentionally putting yourself at risk. And obviously, you know, this just speaks to the importance of the work that you're doing, right? Not many people are willing to do that, but coming back to your calling and your purpose. And it makes me also think about all these different occupational hazards and safeties in your job that actually has a spillover to your personal life. You know, so it begs the question, what is then the most rewarding element in the work that you do? Hmm. It does come at a cost. And, you know, the, the journalist greats like Barbara Walters and others will all say that. Oprah herself says that. She says that, you know, when she was young, she thought she could do it all. But then she realized that you can't do it all, that it does mm -hmm. come with the sacrifice. So I've sacrificed a lot personally. I have a beautiful daughter, interior designer, 27 years old in Toronto, Canada. It's fantastic. If anybody needs an interior designer, let me know. She's <laughs> very talented. But she gave a lot because I didn't spend enough time with her growing mm -hmm. up. You know, we have a great relationship, but she, I know she would always would love to have more time with me. But oftentimes I was traveling around the world in Afghanistan or elsewhere. And then I would of course, shower her with lots of love and attention when I did see her, but you know, it, it's not enough. So there are sacrifices. Now on your question of what's the most rewarding thing, it's the chance to bring about change. It's a rare thing in, in this profession. I'd say 99.999% of the time you do a story, you risk your life, and it's like shouting in the wind and nothing happens. Mm. And this is where I see so many people get frustrated and leave the industry. It's really tough. Investigative journalism costs and there's like less and less dollars to do so. Yeah, I believe it's such an important part of a healthy democracy or a healthy government to have journalists putting power to account. But 
it costs. And, and nowadays with cost cutting, it's not worth it being a journalist. You're not paid that much either. But, you know, the most rewarding is when you do see change, when you do see action. Like with the UNHCR, when we did that investigation in Malaysia, they called the team right away from Geneva to investigate what's going on. And they cleaned house. Wow. It doesn't mean that there's no corruption afterwards, you know, but at that moment, there was change. There was a debate in parliament mm. in Malaysia on the treatment of refugees and whether more needed to be done. You know, it's those sort of moments you go, yes, we've done a little bit of something. We've moved the marker this this much. Maybe it's just a little bit. Or, you know, the Nepal investigation where we exposed one of the biggest middlemen that there was in Nepal, this very scary dude. And, you know, watching him put in handcuffs and and taken away and then watching the investigators, the CIB going through all of the stash of all these statues that have been taken from the temples and knowing then that they would be returned and what it meant to the people in those communities and in those villages. Mm. So yeah, it's those sort of moments that you sort of go, yes, okay, I can keep on going. And while the efforts at that point of time of danger or all the efforts and the work that you do, it might you know, seem like a drop in the ocean when you kind of have the opportunity to look back and see what it counts for, then I guess it does make it all worth it as well. Yeah, it does. It really, really does. And I go back to my daughter, you know, she and I have had constant conversations about that. Mm. And I think, you know, she's come to see sort of all that has come out of the sacrifice. And for her, she herself just wants to do good in the world nowadays too, but even more so than me. And it's just great to sort of see her drive. And I think that's the beautiful thing about this new generation that's coming on. Gen Z's as well as Gen A's, Gen Alpha's that are coming on, all the studies show that what they care most about is how to do good in this world. And that's what really gives me hope. You know, sometimes people say, you know, oh, you've seen so much negative stuff in the world. How can you stay positive about the world? We're talking about potential war between China and the US. We're talking about, you know, a financial crisis. We've just come out of COVID. There's mental health issues. There's so many depressing things happening in the world. And yet, when I look at this new generation that's coming up and their desire for good and the desire to fix the climate and to change things, that leaves me feeling quite positive about what's to come. Mm-hmm. And definitely hopeful as well. On that note, Steve, we're really curious, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are as well, given that we don't have the opportunity to, you know, go behind the scenes and pick the mind of a previous investigative journalist. So I do have to ask you, what is a common misconception of the job that an investigative journalist does? Probably the biggest misconception is that it's a beautifully glorious job filled with glamour because it definitely is not you know sometimes you're stuck in a surveillance vehicle or van for like seven hours at a time and you can't you know take a piss you can't go (laughs) sit on the pot and you're bursting at the seams and it's like maybe bloody hot at times in in those surveillance vans sometimes you're in the middle of a desert and you're you're wondering if you're going to make it out alive with your fingers and your toes And you're saying, oh, Lord, I don't want to do this. I really want to go back a whole person and not lose a piece of me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's sitting at the side of a friend or or a friend's wife because he or she has died. So, yeah, a lot of these things. So it's not as glamorous as what we think. No hair, no makeup, none of that sort. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No no makeup, Mm -hmm. no one doing your hair for you, giving you great massages along the way. (laughs) You're often pumping your own equipment and hiding out, living in two-star hotels to try to not be detected, all these sort of things. 
Wow. So really a reality check of life behind the seemingly glitz and glam of uh, life as an investigative journalist. So Steve, we're going to switch gears a little bit and we want to unpack the topic of fear with you today. All these stories that you shared with us, the experience that you had, you know, going out to the desert, not knowing if you might even come back alive or not, much less when you will be able to return from the desert sometimes. And in the work that you do, you come face to face with fear quite quite literally as well, right? Seeing it in the face of the communities or these nations that you come across, but also internally, that's something that you have to battle as well in the job that you do. And when we think about fear, it can often be really paralyzing, stopping us from living our best lives and doing what we are supposed to do. And you actually gave an incredibly moving TED Talk where you spoke about fear and how we can unlearn fear. And we'll definitely be sure to include that link in our episode show notes for our audience. But from all the experiences that you've had so far, what is the one personal encounter or the most memorable encounter where you came face to face with fear? Thanks for watching the TED Talks, by the way. I would say it would have to be in Afghanistan somewhere. And I think it would be the, the one I shared during the TED Talk. Several years ago, we were reporting on NATO's fight with the Taliban in southern Afghanistan. And we had just finished several days of hot firefights uh, west of Kandahar City in southern Afghanistan. And the mission had just concluded. And a convoy from the main base had come to pick us up. And um, in that convoy was a friend of mine, this big Italian-Canadian dude named Gooch. And uh, as we were about to jump into the armored vehicles, Gooch said to me, Hey, Chow, I'm not feeling good about this ride back. And I'm like, I punched him in the, in the shoulder and went, Hey, Gooch, that's not good luck. You shouldn't be saying that. And the reason why he was, not that I believe in luck, but, you know, we were just going back and forth. But um, the reason he was worried is because to get back 30 kilometers from where we were to the main base near the airport in Kandahar, we had to go through Suicide Alley. This was uh, something nicknamed by the troops. At that time, it was a one-kilometer stretch of road that was the most dangerous stretch of road anywhere on the planet because of the number of suicide attacks, the number of IEDs planted in the road. He just felt something that day. And I remember as we drove back towards the base, when we got close to Suicide Alley, I turned on my camera just because he had that hunch. And Gooch was right beside me in the armored vehicle his legs were basically like jutted out here because he was manning the turret beside me with his 50 cal and i remember him just you know he was the commander of the convoy and he was saying okay watch the left watch the right and as we entered suicide alley i was really attentive and all the soldiers were as well we had hit 100 meters 200 meters 300 meters nothing 800 meters 900 meters and just when i thought okay we're clear and I was just ready to click off my camera. I heard Gooch yell, watch this minivan on the left. And I can see him swing the turret, but it was too late. And I remember looking through the thick glass window of the armored vehicle and seeing this minivan parked on the side and its back springs were like this, which meant it was weighted with something heavy in the back. And you knew that those were explosives. And sure enough, the driver just at that moment, gunned the minivan into our convoy right in front of us and detonated. And I remember the shrapnel, the, the sheer G-force of that impact was massive. You think about the movies with that sonic boom, right? That's how it felt. It literally threw us back in our seats, through the armor, through the glass and armored plating, and the shrapnel flew in from the top turret. And I remember Gooch falling down beside me. 
And I thought he was dead. You know, often case that, that's the case because the shrapnel would just tear you to shreds. Then I remember the ball of flames and the driver yelling, drive, 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 because you need to get out of the, what they call the kill zone. Because often there's a secondary, a tertiary attack. So they drove through the flames. They circled around. There was one vehicle, the one that was in front of us, that was on fire. Two soldiers fell out of the vehicle in flames. And then they circled that vehicle. And the soldiers piled out right away. Gooch amazingly was alive. He had just gotten a, a few minor cuts. And right away, without a moment's hesitation, he was like, okay, let's go. And everyone just jumped out. But I was there frozen in the vehicle because I was paralyzed by fear. What I was focusing on at that moment was if it was five seconds later, we would have been that vehicle on fire and we might not have made it out alive. And so I was paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And I remember it took me five minutes going, come on, shake it, shake it, shake it. You need to be reporting. You need to be reporting. And my hands were trembling like this. And then I remember saying, okay, finally, I got the courage and I managed to not step outside. Everyone had been outside for a long time. And Gooch is like, ciao, get out here. Ciao, get out here. And I'm like, okay. But then I finally went up on the turret and first filmed outside. And then slowly I calmed down and then I managed to step outside and do what I was supposed to do, which is report on what was happening. And it was a sad sight with little boys who had been at the market nearby, cut to shreds and, you know, a lot of other heartbreak in terms of what it looked like after the attack. So, yeah, faced fear a lot uh, through the years. But going back to what you said earlier, Janice, what I have learned through all the 25 plus years of reporting in terms of fear is that fear is learned. And this is something I share in my TED talk that, you know, we make decisions in life which dictate whether we want to live by fear or live by courage. And it's actually quite physical. Like people have broken this down scientifically. And in our brain, when we make a decision, there's a synapse fire, right? From point A to point B. And that creates what's known as a neural pathway. And the more often we choose to live by fear, like if I had chose to say, you know what, there's no way I'm getting out of this vehicle. Boom, that's one decision made. And the next time I made that decision again and again and again, and that neural pathway fire gets deeper and deeper, just like a well-trodden path. That's a learned behavior. But what I've seen around me and what I've learned is that you can unlearn that. And the moment I decided to say, hey, you know what? I'm actually going to step out on the turret. It's a different decision, a new neural pathway. And the more often I choose that, the more well-grooved that path becomes and the easier you are to be courageous. And the soldiers are an example of that. You know, the soldiers themselves reacted right away to do their job because they had trained their minds, their synapses to make that decision as opposed to focus on fear. And that's the other aspect that I would like to sort of point towards. And it's something that um, Dan Blythe, this incredibly cool young pastor in the UK, said recently uh, in a sermon of his on fear. He said that fear takes over if you focus on it. So what you focus on dictates how you'll behave. And that was the case here in this case as well. I was focused on, wow, five seconds later, I might be dead. And that paralyzed me. But if I focus instead on, hey, I need to get out there to report on the travesty of what happened during this attack, that changes and shifts things. And then the bigger focus for me, and I always go back to this, is faith. You know, I have a clear purpose and I have a clear belief that God has placed me there for a reason. And if that reason is to report, 
I better get out there because I'm more fearful of God than, you know, of myself being paralyzed by fear. So, so there you go. That's incredibly powerful, Steve. I really like the reframe on focusing on something beyond fear. And in this case, it's faith that drives you. It's faith that really helps you push on in the moments of fear or extreme danger. And I do think that it's very natural for us as humans to, in a situation of fight or flight, the natural instinct is to run away when we face a threat. So the idea of rewiring our brains to focus on facing that fear instead and focus on what it is that your mission at the time that you need to do, which is to to film, which is to tell that story, that is what ultimately allowed you to triumph over your fear. So really imp- incredibly powerful testimony. What about yourselves? I have a question. How do you two overcome your fears? What have been some of your situations? Let me turn this hot seat back on you guys. Oh. And, you know, so share your stories, please. Can't say I saw, I saw this coming, Steve. Um, a really, really good question. The way I like to think about it is like fear comes in so many different forms. And it's also, you know, it can be the big things, but at the same time, it can also be the everyday small decisions that you make to overcome fear. And whether it's in the form of, for example, putting yourself out there to do something that, you know, you might not commonly do, or it it might not be something that is a familiar muscle that you're stretching. I'm trying to think of the last time that I felt fear. It's probably, it sounds very cliche, but it was, yeah, probably just doing public speaking. I personally enjoy public speaking and sharing from experience to share with others about lessons learned on on life and career and things like that. I recently did that in my office in front of like 100 over people. I had 10 minutes to do a little sharing and I was scared because I'm like, oh my goodness, the people that are in front of me are people that half of them I know and half of them I don't. Some of them were my customers, were my partners and my colleagues as well. My manager was there. My skip level manager was there. My biggest boss was there. It was really terrifying. And granted, I I only had 15 minutes to do a sharing. But at the same time, I decided that, you know what? Yeah, I do enjoy public speaking, but I think bigger than that is like, I think I have a little story to tell. And my greater hope was that someone would get something out of it. So just get over yourself, Sarah, get over that fear of being in front of people and and tell that story. And it was really humbling, I would say more than anything else. I didn't think it was powerful or anything. I thought it was humbling when people came up to me after that and say like, hey, you know, that's the same journey that I'm going on. Thank you for sharing this with me because it made me feel less alone. The career transitions and the unknown and the, the uncertainty that that was in front of them that they had to confront, all of which I spoke about in that short 15 minutes, it helped others to resonate and recognize that they were not alone as well. So that's a long, long roundabout way, Steve, of answering the last time that I can recall that I had to overcome fear. So yeah, that's my little story, I guess. Janice, what about yourself? I would say the the most memorable one I had was when me and my best friend, when we went on holiday one day, we very impulsively decided that we wanted to try something new. And we we're like, okay, this is scary, but we're going to try to drive a boat. Just the two of us. <laughs> <I remember laughs> For the story. very first time, because we were on holiday and she was, you know, she wanted to be adventurous. So I said, how hard can it be? And the worst case scenario is we might get lost, but we'll get some help. Um, turns out that driving a boat is pretty darn difficult. You should not do it if you're unlicensed. That's one of the biggest lessons I learned. Uh, but at the same time, another realization I had was that after a bit of fumbling here and there, we did eventually successfully manage to drive the boat, even though both of us had never driven a boat in our entire lives. But it didn't end the best. Uh, the waves were very, very rocky and uh, we could not get back on the boat. Long story short, this was really God's mercy. I was praying. I was like, okay, this is Lord, please let this not be 
how I go down <laughs> in the seas of Croatia. Ultimately, someone came by, spotted two girls kind of floating around a boat, you know, in the water, and they managed to pull us up on the boat and drove us back to shore. So it, it had a happy ending, but at the same time, I don't know if I would recommend this, but out of this fearful expedition, I managed to gain a new skill. I managed to learn how to drive a boat. So all not is lost. <laughs> Ooh, amazing, amazing. You know, you guys had mentioned something earlier that sometimes fear is a good motivator. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it pushes you to do things you ordinarily might not be comfortable with doing, right? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a shock to the system, I would say. And sometimes it's it's much needed, you know. I can't remember someone wise on the internet, I don't want to misquote who said this, but you know, do something that scares you every now and then. And that's up to you to decide how you define every now and then, whether it's once a month, you know, once a week, once a year. Do something big and scary. Because if you don't do something big and scary, it means you're kind of being too comfortable. And you know, just a story that came to mind, Steve, very quickly without hijacking your conversation because this is really about hearing from you. I love this. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, Janice, about something we overcame together was running our first half marathon um, together last year. Uh, That's you a guys very did a marathon together last year. Yeah. Half, half a half marathon. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of our audience have heard us share about this before, but it really started with Janice and I just deciding that, you know, I, I turned 30 last year and I was like, I'm going to do this as my birthday challenge. And bless my mom. She was like, why can't you just be like a normal kid who wants to, you know, go and have a spa or whatever? Why do you want to do something crazy on your, like, I don't get it. But anyway, Janice, <laughs> I know, but Janice came on board and we decided let's do it because it's something we've never done before. And you'll definitely be a challenge. It's scary because before that, I was not able to run well. Like I run like two or three kilometers and I would stop because I had side pains and knee pains and all the signs of aging. But, you know, Janice and I really put our mind to it. And it, you're, it was you're a not, You're not period. allowed to say you're aging when you're just like 30, okay? <laughs> okay. Rude, <Just> Sarah. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, we overcame it and, you know, it was such a great story to tell also because we not only did we complete the half marathon, but we completed in like torrential rain in Pataling Jaya back in September. Um, You know, we were completely soaked even from the get-go. We thought they would cancel mm. the half marathon, but they didn't and we just championed on. And at the end of it, it's such a powerful and memorable story of a way we overcame that physical fear to a certain extent but I think also that mental played a bit because you know our minds play tricks on us to tell us that you know can you really do this you know 21 is a lot but yeah we were able to do it so I love that that's so exciting and I love that you guys have asked about fear I run a production house these days um, I'm independent now of Al Jazeera and some of the networks I worked for we produce for as you mentioned Netflix and HBOs and others but one of the things we've been working through is the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you guys probably have explored this on Explore This before, <laughs> but uh, but it's really important. It's directly correlative to fear that, you know, mm -hmm. this idea that the fixed mindset when people say, oh, I cannot do this, or this is all I'm going to do for the rest of my life because this is where I'm, where I'm comfortable. Those decisions are often made because of fear. You're afraid of failure. You're afraid of putting yourself out there. All these sort of aspects, right? Whereas when you have the growth mindset, you're like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to take myself so seriously. I'm just going to go out there and try things, as you've said, Sarah Ann, right? I find that totally amazing. And we're trying to encourage our team to do that. And maybe we encourage our viewers to think about that as well, that if you change and shift and address and acknowledge your fear, don't not acknowledge it, don't ignore it, 
and then say, well, you know what, how do I grow out of this or grow beyond this? Then you realize that you experience so many new things. For you guys, it was a 21-kilometer marathon. Amazing. You know, and Janice, it's you learning how to drive a boat, you know, with your friend and then being rescued afterwards. That in <laughs> itself is a crazy experience. Life is so much richer when we can get beyond, you know, those those fears. Yeah, definitely. And I like to think about it as it's not that you can't do it. It's perhaps you just haven't been able to do it yet. But, you know, when you think about it from that perspective, you allow yourself to expand your mind to think about, okay, what are the possibilities? So on that note, Steve, we've taken some time to share a little bit of our stories about overcoming fear. And for yourself, it was a very personal as well as powerful encounter literally on the battlefield. But, you know, coming and bring it down a little bit more into the context of very ordinary and unsuspecting day-to-day worries and fears that stop us from living our fullest potential. So how should we encourage our listeners and ourselves to find the courage even in these ordinary moments to overcome fear? What I would say is, you know, the decisions on the battlefield that I've made to overcome fear are exactly the same decisions you make in your everyday life to overcome fear. It's just a different environment, a different theater. And, you know, it goes back to a lot of things that we spoke about. It's what are we focusing on? Are we focusing on the fear as opposed to anything beyond that? So acknowledging the fear, looking at what we focus on, taking baby steps as well. I believe that, you know, sometimes we don't have to jump in a boat maybe right away to learn how to drive a boat or what have you. But, you know, take baby steps to get us to that point. And again, that creates that new neural pathway I talk about. So you don't have to take leaps sometimes to get there. Some of the questions I often ask myself, you know, just to double check whether the fear is a healthy fear or not healthy fear, or if I'm living by fear, is am I hesitating to try something new, which we talked about? Am I settling for something less than I deserve? Or I'm very defensive and say I'm not afraid of anything? Or, you know, I'm losing my temper a lot or I'm falling apart during a situation? or I tend to judge others on success or failure. Those are some measures that I ask myself often when I'm faced in a situation where I might be allowing fear to dictate the way I way I live. But again, I go back to the overall summary of what I'm saying here, which is just take baby steps. And eventually you realize, wow, I've overcome that fear. Just on why that's important. And mm-hmm. this goes back to storytelling. Like when we do investigations, we always go, why do we care? Right. So why do we care about fear? I know if we can overcome fear, it helps our personal lives. But then I want to bring it back to my mission, which I think it should be humanity's mission. I believe that if all of us can overcome fear in our lives, fear of failure being a big one of that or fear of being hurt, we can transform the world. And it might sound very Boy Scoutish for me to say that, but I really feel it's important. We are facing some of the biggest challenges that humanity has faced. We are destroying our planet. We're facing the fourth mass extinction. You know, we've just come out of a pandemic. We're going to have other pandemics to come. You know, the world warms. And we're facing possible a new world war, potentially, according to a lot of analysts. You know, we're in a new cold war for sure. There are so many uncertainties. But if all of us individually overcome our fear and spur action, speak up against the bully, speak up against injustice in our communities, on our street, in our offices, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, slowly 
we can make a difference. And all of us can do that. And I've seen that. I've seen individuals in every place on this planet make a difference because they chose to overcome their fear, put themselves at risk, and have gone through to the other side to a more meaningful life. That's powerful. And thank you so much for bringing us back to the driving force and the why. I think that's so important to understand because without understanding the why, it makes it really hard to push through the difficult times. And one final question for you. It's a question that we like to ask all our guests on the Explore This podcast, which is what is the one thing you have recently explored that has surprised you? The most recent thing that has taken up a lot of my time is growing this production house business. Mm. I grew up, you know, with a little bit of a small business with my parents. They sold paper. So I had a bit of a business exposure. But as a journalist, you sort of look down on capitalism and those who, you know, are are doing things for profit because you think you're doing something far more holy, if you will. And now I find myself in a seat where, you know, we need to make profit in order to pay pay our employees and ensure that there's sustainability long-term, that not only take care of them, therefore, but we take care of their families. And all that has been such a surprising exploration of, you know, how to build a business, how to see that capitalism is not necessarily all bad, but, you know, also the exciting part of taking care of a small eco community, which is what we're developing in a company. You know, this little culture of, you know, and our production house only takes on projects that do good. That's a fun part. But then how do you make that sustainable? And how do you make that something financially viable? That sort of thing is, you know, been been really good for me. And that also relates to what we were talking about earlier, which is how do we keep from having a fixed mindset to a growth mindset? Mm. And then how do we as a company then continue to input and make the world better? So, yeah. Well, we can't wait to hear a little bit more about your production house. So on that note, Steve, where can our listeners find you to learn more about your work, to support the work that you do? They can find a lot of the work online, fortunately, or, you know, you can check out our website, signalflareproductions.com. It's a small mini website and we're growing massively at this point. We're very blessed to have lots of projects in the pipeline. So there is more to come on various streamers around the world. So stay tuned. That is an incredible way to end our very, very powerful chat with you today. So thank you so much once again, Steve, for your time with us. We are very grateful that we get to exchange this conversation with you and to amplify it to our listeners on Explore This Podcast as well. Sarah Ann, Janice, thank you very much for having me. I am very honoured. If you stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We would love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every alternate Mondays at 8pm. See you then!